Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Games and Thrones edition. Ah, that's popular nice. culture. <laughs> Thank you very much. With me today, we have managing editor, our bossy McBoss man, as I like to call him. I've never called you that before. That's on my business card. <laughs> It should be. Yes. I like it. Dave Breckenridge, <laughs> thank you for joining us. No problem. Uh, my fellow legislative reporter, Stuart Thompson. Hey. Hello. And legislative columnist, Graham Thompson. Good no relation. To? Any of us in this room. <laughs> You'd be relieved to hear. Good morning. <laughs> so the game is politics and a little bit of strategy from federal conservative party hopeful Kevin O'Leary, which happened here in Edmonton this week. The throne is obviously the throne speech on Thursday that kicked off the spring sitting of the Legislative Assembly and brought in the first bill of the session. Hooray! We'll also talk a little bit about the Premier's jaunt to Washington. Graham's super keen to talk about that, so we'll throw that in there. So let the games begin, you guys. Let's start with... Let's start with the throne speech. I don't know, Queen, etc. It feels like she should get the the first nod here. Mm. So the throne speech. Graham, what did you think of it? Well, it's like any throne speech, right? This is a chance for the government to give us, I called it an infomercial in my column this morning. <laughs> yeah, you did. And that's what it is. That's, they got a chance to present a vision for the coming year, for the coming session. And this is something governments do all the time in our system of government. And it's usually a rosy picture or if things are tough right now, they'll get better. And this is sort of the theme of the NDP's speech from the throne was, yeah, we've gone through some rough times, but uh, we're turning the corner. There's some you know, light end of the tunnel, that kind of thing. But the thing is, they actually did add a few nuggets in there of real news. Um, that was, mm. of course, particularly the uh, reduction in school fees, uh, reducing it by 25% for parents. And this is a following up an election promise. So they're deliberately not just giving a rosy view of the future. Well, they'd be dumb to do that, wouldn't they? Because it's not exactly rosy right now. Well, that's just it. That they're trying to, what they're trying to do is basically get the average everyday Albertans on side with them, saying, yeah, things are bad right now, but we're going to make life easier for you. So this is really aimed at, as they keep telling us, everyday Albertans. And, of course, the opposition is saying this is the government buying people with their own money. Yeah, Rick McCarthy, they're taking 20 bucks from one pocket, giving you five in the other and expecting you to be happy. And I have to laugh because the PCs did this <laughs> for decades, the yes, very same thing. We asked him about this, though, and he said the difference was um, the PCs had a plan, a fiscal plan for the province, Graham, so... Yeah, and of course, and the NDP said... You doubt them? Well, I, I would doubt... Yeah, listen, I covered them for 30 years now. I still doubt they had a fiscal plan for the province. But the, the NDP, of course, you could question their fiscal plan for the province. But everyone says they have a, a plan for the province. They'll deny you're, they're buying your votes with your own money, of course, and they all do it. Governments come and go, but the themes remain the same. So when you said it's like an infomercial, did it come with a free set of steak knives? <laughs> well... I think people would lose a lot of faith in us if they realized how long it took us to think of the word subliminal yesterday <laughs> in the legislature. It was a good like minute and a half. I was going with mnemonics, and I'm like, no, there's something wrong with that word. But I think Graham's right. There was a lot of talk in that speech of money going farther. It wasn't about giving you more money in your pocket. It was about that dollar in your pocket is going to go a little farther because we know there's not going to be many more of those dollars coming. And... Along with the, I mean, I think you guys both mentioned it in your stories, um, the your government thing. It does seem like they're trying to get us all in with them. And 52 times they said yeah. that. And you could, that, that could be, if I used the same phrase 52 times in a 
piece in our insight section, which is our longer pieces, that would be bad. That would be your bad writing. Phrase. Yeah, They'd so, be, half of them would be cut out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a solid twenty-six would be fine. <laughs> but I, it's interesting, and like, it's hard to think that this was something that just snuck through because I think everyone in the gallery was noticing that right away. This phrase is there a lot, and. I think it was more than double the the other phrase, which I think was my government. Yeah, a year ago it was my government was um, like 25 times. The first speech, this sounds so arcane, doesn't it? It does. Counted. (laughs) The the very first one that they put the throne speech was um, had uh, a very short one. It had 12 Alberta's new government. Then last year it was my government. 25 times. This time around, it's 52 times the speech mentioned your government. And I talked to the government yesterday and asked officials there, and they said, look, it's just a coincidence, a new speechwriter. You know, it's not a big deal. 52 times they mentioned your government. And I thought, this is something deliberate. There's something going on here. And the thing is, maybe we're reading too much into it, but when you have that kind of phrase in there so many times, and these people, believe me, the, the speechwriters and the executive uh, upstairs, the people in the, um, the executive office, they read these things really carefully. And they would have seen this. And it's done deliberately. And why it does sound like they're trying to include all of us in this. Well, it's all about messaging. Like the, This is the midway point of their term. This is all about trying to reset what has been a rough couple of years and start looking forward to two years down the line when they want people to be thinking in the ballot box when they say your government, this is my government. This is, uh, they're doing good things for me. They've said so, you know, 52 times in the throne speech, they're my government. They want to start getting some positive messaging out there because it hasn't been a good couple of years. You look at the school fees thing as kind of their first real solid foray as government into retail politics or pocketbook politics. You know, they did some of that with the rebate on the carbon tax, but I think that was to deflect criticism from what was an unpopular policy plank that was ideologically driven. This is something that everyone hates. You find something that everyone hates and you throw money at it. Like Stephen Harper did with GST. Stephen Harper did with trying to give people tax credits on fitness programs and arts programs for kids. And Ralph Klein did it with big city mayors in 2004 when he threw a billion dollars in infrastructure money a couple months before the provincial election to get them to shut up. So if everyone hated me, <laughs> they would just start throwing money my at me. My office is over there. And my dad, you know, if there's an envelope when I come back okay, to my desk, that good. would be okay. Good to know. <laughs> Filing that piece of info away. Something else on the throne speech too, and it might explain why we're talking about the wordiness or the words they used. There wasn't a ton of new stuff in there. And I mean, we can we can put it, we can probably like itemize it right now. One of them was the Consumer Bill of Rights, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of a follow on to all this um, you know they're they're going after predatory lending and they're um, banning door to door energy sales. Um, so that was new. There was the intervener status on the Trans Mountain pipeline, which, I mean, that I don't think that's massively significant that they're doing it. They upped their language though on that. Yeah. They were like, yeah, we're going to take it to court. It's more signaling than yeah. it is an effective thing to do, um, and it's something that they want to make sure people know we're really going to bat for this. And um, as Graham has written about a couple of times. This has a lot to do with the fact that there's an NDP party uh, on the West Coast vying to be in charge of BC. And if they win that election, it is just going to be a catastrophe for this NDP government and for that pipeline. So I think they don't know what's going to happen. So I think they're just trying to get their bona fides uh, ahead of the game with the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Yeah, make sure everyone knows where they stand. On yeah, that. and that election, by the way, it's worth watching. Of course, it takes place on in May. 
the BC election, and right now the polls are showing the NDP and the Liberals uh, in a tie right now. It's neck and neck. And if the NDP, which is uh, said very um, very bluntly in British Columbia, they're against the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, if they win, Stuart's right, it's a huge problem for the NDP here. The NDP here is saying you may not like the carbon tax or the climate leadership plan, but that's giving us this social license to get the pipelines built. And in fact, Ottawa has given conditional approval to Trans Mountain based on Alberta's climate leadership plan and the carbon tax. So they can say, you may not like it, but we'll get a pipeline built. If the NDP wins the election in B.C. and basically shuts down that pipeline and any construction for years and years, that's a huge problem for the NDP here. Plus, it reminds people in Alberta that the NDP is the one that's blocking the pipeline, so why vote for the NDP <laughs> yeah. next election here? And then there's like the, oh, the big question there is, uh, how much open warfare do you see between NDP and NDP? And maybe something that's worth remembering here is that the new chief of staff for the NDP yeah, is right. John Heaney, who Can is a former BC, uh, BC yeah. NDPer. It's going to get awkward, isn't it? That's going to be really awkward. Do you and think he'll go back to BC and be like, well, <laughs> my work here is done? No, I think, he's, I think he's here for the end of the term. Uh, he got the job a month ago or two months ago, so uh, I think he's in for a while. But, I mean, this is going to be fascinating, and it's going to be really interesting to see how they play this because we were all there in December when that pipeline got approved and uh, I had to laugh in the throne speech it said something about how we're not going to celebrate oh, until yeah, right. the first <laughs> oil goes celebrated for <laughs> months. Yeah, yeah I mean uh, let, let me just take you back to the day after it got approved and uh, Rachel Notley came back from Ottawa and she everyone gave her a standing ovation from the NDP I was yeah. like oh if that's not celebrating lads I don't know what is. I've <laughs> never seen not that I've seen a lot but I've never seen a question period quite like that and it was just Rockets. It was like, oh, wait, uh, pipelines? This was an education question. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you mean pipelines? Yeah, we oh. could call it celebrating. <laughs> I'm sure there was some champagne in the back rooms. I would say. <laughs> I would say so. So uh, there wasn't a lot of new news necessarily in the throne speech, but then again, they're not really really known for it. But I guess the real business will kick off on Monday with the first question period and yeah. and where we see from there. And, I mean, they did. Uh, there was the news of Bill 1, and mm. that's kind of what they were telling us is – Throne speech is more aspirational. It's about your goals and, you know, families and pipelines and energy. Um, but the school fees thing is what I think they wanted people to be noticing and talking about. Yeah. Well, if you've got kids, seems like something you would probably be happy with. Yeah. I Al- guess. Although it is funny. This is a this is a party who said many times that the right-leaning parties in Alberta would cut teachers and nurses and doctors by making cuts to health, finding savings in healthcare and education. And I know that $50 million is a small drop in a $8 billion bucket, but for them to turn around and say, oh, we found savings. So you found savings without cutting teachers from the classroom. I, wow. It's, you know, it's, they said they found it through <laughs> staff attrition in the department and redundant grants and programs that weren't required anymore. We don't have any details on what that stuff is. So some children are going with that colouring pencils? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. This is an outrage. Uh, yeah. Um, so let's move, um, move over now to a bit of a game here that happened this week. The Federal Conservative leadership race came here to Edmonton. Uh, there was a big debate of the 14 candidates. 13 showed up and took their place down on the stage. And, of course, one didn't. One Mr. Kevin O'Leary decided he was going to have his own little event. So we did his fireside chat, which was shockingly without an actual fireside. Mm. How much of a game did this seem like, Dave? It was totally a game. And I think everything played into his hands. He got all the attention he wanted from it. Um, His opponents were talking about him on stage. They were criticizing him 
to the audience in the crowd, mm-hmm. but it gave him a lot more publicity among members. And I, his game is trying, as an outsider, is trying to sign up new members and trying to sign up new donors. And if you can get some of the attention and it, it, you draw in people who feel that um, the Conservative Party is a bunch of insider elites, which I think he's trying to play to a little bit, um, it, it works well for you. And I don't think he hurts by skipping a debate. Um, I know that Canadian politics are a lot more genteel than they are south of the border, and and people are shocked. They're, they so were shocked polite. he was going to stay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that while he took a hit, it it worked in his favor in the long run. And it wasn't so much just that he skipped it, but he set up his little event right across the street. <laughs> yeah, at the same time. <laughs> yeah, at the exact same time. Amazing. Well, I, so there, I think there's two aspects to this. One is um, the practical matter of. Is he correct that it's ridiculous to have 14 people on the stage and do a debate in that format? And I think that maybe there's a fair case there um, <laughs> because that's too many people. And we saw that during the Republican debates. It, it was ridiculous. Year. I was there. I was covering it. It was absolutely it's insane. Fair. <laughs> but then there is what Dave's talking about is the other side, which is probably the more important side, the political maneuvering that's going on here. And I, I'm not sure about that because we, I think everyone covered the debate. And the only people that went to O'Leary's thing were uh, Canadian Press, Dean Bennett was there, and The Rebel. Yep. Uh, and from what Dean told us, those were the only two people at the, the O'Leary thing. <laughs> so what he's really getting is that kind of secondary coverage of Kevin O'Leary wasn't here. That's really all he's getting. And I think probably Dave is correct that for a lot of conservatives and a lot of you know maybe on the fence would-be conservatives who don't want to be part of the party yet – that might be a good thing. Like that might be something they say, oh, he's not part of that uh, group of 13 or 14 people on the stage who are all, you know, party insiders that I don't care about in the first place. Mm. What do you think of the debate, Graham? I didn't watch the debate. Oh, you had something better to do. You know, the thing I, is, I find that hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> I got to agree with Dave on this one. I think that um, like you have 14 people on the stage. Like journalistically, you cannot cover that. It no. is impossible. You have to pick some sort oh, of... Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? And people, no one's really following the debate. No one's really following this leadership race. If you're in a piece, uh, sorry, the Conservative Party, federally, yeah, maybe you're following it. Most people are not. And I think that O'Leary, and you can criticize him for all kinds of reasons. And this week we had a really good column written by Andrew Coyne on why you should not support Kevin O'Leary and why he should irritate the heck out of you. He lives in the U.S., He's playing sort of fast and loose, it sounds like, with some of the, the fundraising um, rules and spending money on his leadership, like using a, a private jet, for example. Um, and also... I'm sure that's fine. <laughs> yeah, but he is not expensing it as a private jet. He's just putting in for one first-class airplane ticket, um, apparently. Well, technically, that is very first-class. There you go. Stop defending Kevin O'Leary. <laughs> the thing is, though, but having said all that, I have no problem with what he did because there's 14 people on stage. I've covered enough of these debates over the years. It's impossible to get any sort of coverage. It's all static to people out there. And I think O'Leary, if he wants to put himself separate from the pack, he did that like literally. He moved his little entourage across the street and did his own little thing. It was covered by CP. We're talking about it. Andrew Coyne did a uh, column on it. People are talking about Kevin O'Leary, even though most media weren't covering his event. We're still talking about him. And that's the whole point here. When you're in these leaderships, you're trying to sell memberships. The idea is to get away from the pack and set yourself up differently than the rest of the people 
in that pack. And he's doing that brilliantly. You can say he is not um, worthy to become leader. The, the, the conservatives, fine, fair enough. But when it comes to actually doing something different in this leadership race, he's actually managing to do it. Well, and it is, you saw this, I think the Republican primary is a good um, template for this, where if you have sort of an amorphous blob of conservative bots that make up maybe three quarters of that group of people, you're going to be naturally attracted to the people who are different. And, you know, someone like Lisa Raitt, who's sort of a Southern Ontario conservative who... (laughs) think is pretty well respected in the party and by the media and you know by her constituents but it's hard for her really to get any traction because most of her views are like template conservative views so it's the same for most of them right? yeah you have maxime bernier who's sort of a libertarian who's you know he's just sort of a different kind of tory than the rest of them and then there's kelly leach who has separated herself with this whole canadian values thing and then she Kevin. also wore a white jacket where everyone else wore a black one, aside from Peterson, who wore an Oilers jersey. And that is another great example of these mm. guys are doing anything they possibly can to look a little different than the rest of them. And, and, that, and that worked. It works, yeah. <laughs> so I think when you have this many people, you're going to get fringe candidates who are getting the focus. And not that Kevin O'Leary is necessarily fringe, but he is different. And he sort of brings that kind of like TV personality thing where he knows how to get attention and he's going to do that. Which is a shame for the party in a lot of ways, because it in some ways becomes a race to the bottom or who can get attention for saying outlandish things. Um, (coughs) Kelly Leach. (coughs) Well, you know, it hasn't helped her campaign overall. I don't think she's doing as well as she had hoped. Um, but you lose something in the quality of the debate when it becomes a desperation play to get attention among a crowded field. Yeah, she uh, actually, uh, during the debate as well, uh, one of the questions that ca- that was put to the candidates was, what would you do about the all of these folks fleeing over the border from the States into Canada? And then she said all the other candidates are now twisting themselves like pretzels to follow her lead on uh, hardcore immigration controls. I don't think that's... Uh, necessarily, I, I mean, that's obviously an overstatement, but I don't think... What? No. <laughs> uh, but what I think is happening is that, and actually, Andrew Coyne, again, wrote an excellent column about this last week where he said this is sort of a Rubicon for the Tories. They they have this part of their party, which is very anti-immigrant and um, is sort of being led by fringe media like the rebel um and this whole kerfuffle over the Islamophobia motion, I think, is sort of like a litmus test for this. And he was saying that is an electoral death trap. If you go down that road, you may get 20% of the electorate who will be really, really into you and will be a really good base. But we saw this during the last federal election where, you know, a lot of that stuff about the kneecaps um, cost votes. And it, it might have scared people away in, you know, the Ontario suburbs from the Tories. And... I think it's easy to go down that road during your uh, leadership race when it's all conservatives voting, but you're going to have to fight a general election. And it's going to be hard to fight a general election with someone like Kelly Leach who uh, toes the line on anti-immigrant stuff. Toes the line. I would say jumps right across that with yeah. gay abandon. Well, I think if you listen to the way she talks, it's uh, it's all coded language, right? So they, I think they think they can get away with coded language, which is... We're just interested in Canadian values. I disagree. I don't think she uses coded language. Speaking of Kelly Leach, now she blames the media for not getting her message yeah. out properly. And yeah, I believe that Emma, Emma has a, a story to tell us about that. I had a little run-in with Kelly Leach 
after the Conservative debate. So we're scrumming all of the, the candidates after the debate. And uh, Kelly Leach comes up to the microphone, uh, has a bit of a chat, and then is asked, well, about this video, I mean, why, why have you done your video and what's your take on media here? And she said that the media is misrepresenting everything she's saying. Uh, they're getting in the way and, and so she's just put this video out so people can get her true values without the media getting in the way because they're misrepresenting anything. Thank you. Goodbye. Turns around and walks away. So, of course, I wanted to follow up because she's saying some interesting things in this video about how every single visitor and immigrant to Canada should have a face-to-face interview, which they do. It's called going to a border agent, which every single person does when they come into Canada. FYI. So I followed her and in my Australian accent because I'm an immigrant. Hello. Did you um, double the Aussie when you did this? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I didn't double the Aussie, but I was, you know, I was, I was kind of like, Kelly, Kelly, I want to ask you some more questions about your, uh, your video and, and your immigration thing, because of course everyone has an interview face-to-face. So I'm following her across the stage with my, with my phone out to try and record, and she swings around and goes, you don't get to chase me! And then she ran backstage where I physically couldn't chase her anymore because so there's she security was right. there. She was right, yeah. <laughs> so that was um, an interesting thing that the media, well, me, one member of the media, is trying to get clarity on what exactly she's saying because apparently we misrepresent her all the time <laughs> and then we're not allowed to do so. She was not impressed. Yeah, she I think we can swung expect... swung around in her mad scientist white coat and <laughs> off she went. I think we can expect more of this because if there's anything that Donald Trump has proved, it's that you will never go wrong insulting the media. There's a lot of people who really love that. And there's very few people who will be willing to defend us. There's like, I think, <laughs> maybe 10% of the population who are, you know, high info media readers who actually still like us. There's a lot of people who read the media and enjoy <laughs> it, but still hate us. Uh, <laughs> My family hates the media. Yeah. Mine yeah. too, actually. <laughs> but I think it's love just you, one of those things. Love you, Dad. Love you guys. <laughs> You, as, as a journalist, you're going to have to, you know, when, when there's uh, some kind of horrible tragedy, you have to go to someone's house and try to get yeah. uh, them to talk to you. And people hate that. And we have our own reasons for why it's important to do that in a democracy, but people don't give a crap about that. My blood-sucking gutter monsters. Yeah. That's so, also on my business card. <laughs> <laughs> but people read the stories, though, right? They may not like oh, yeah. what we do, but they actually have a, an appetite. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, a tough, it's a tough circle to square there because I think people sort of, know how important it is but in general like most of the stuff i write you get insulting emails from you know one side of the spectrum and then the next day you'll get insulting emails from the other side of the spectrum sometimes so, about the same story both sides of the yeah. spectrum i so love it when that happens they're always mad at you and i think that's why this works so well is that even if people aren't totally comfortable with the attack they're not going to waste their time defending you but I do, I do want to give a shout out to Dave because when I tweeted about this, <laughs> Dave was like, you can chase anybody you want. Tell her I said it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. I mean, it's true. Right. And that's that's the job. We want to get clarity. People don't necessarily want to stop and talk to us. We're going to follow. And it's baffling that someone like that doesn't understand that. It's like, you don't get to chase me. Well, that's kind of what I do. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is actually, I, I don't think a lot of people... Um, see how the sausage gets made too because that happens a lot like if we're in a press conference part of the job is if you have a politician who's well practiced and has lines you need to get them off those lines a little bit and sometimes you ask a question that it isn't necessarily what you believe but it is designed to maybe rattle them just a little bit and maybe make them a little defensive and then when that happens they're more open to actually telling you what they think because 
those lines leave their head a little bit. And that's just part of it. And it looks, I think it looks more combative than it really is. And it's just kind of how the job works. Well, the thing is, it's one thing to, to chase um, an average person down the street who's just going about his business. Yeah, I don't usually that. Do is that. not a good Very thing. Very rarely. <laughs> but you know, my colleagues are right. And here we are. Yay, journalism. <laughs> and I've covered enough politicians over the years to make a statement and run from us. You have to like literally chase them. Uh, you go back, I'm thinking 30 years ago, uh, Don Getty was premier, and he went through a rough patch with the media, and he, he refused to take any answer and any questions. And we ended up like days and like chasing him down the hallways, literally down the hallways, up and downstairs to have him talk to us. If you're it's a, good cardio. If, <laughs> if you're a public person, uh, a politician, whatever, you have to expect media is going to ask you questions you don't like, and you're going to have to stand there and take it and answer the questions. If not, we will chase you down the hallways. Yeah, and often... No matter what you say, Kelly Leach. <laughs> often what you're trying to do is frame the question in a way that their biggest opponent would say it because the people in who are your readers who oppose that policy or that politician or whether it's Wild Rose or NDP, they want you to ask that question that's in their mind. And I think that's how you get them to talk to that side of the electorate. Yeah. Uh, Graham, just briefly now, the Premier was down in Washington. Her trip got cut early because there were tornadoes on the way. <laughs> Fun fact. <laughs> Why did she go down there? Well, what was the was, point of that? This was the she's actually the first premier since Trump got elected to actually visit Washington D.C. This is her way, of course, of you know going t- reminding the Americans just how important the Canada exists. <laughs> well, and we had the prime minister there the, uh, a few weeks ago. This is and the sort of falling on his um, on his coattails. She's reminding all. Uh, uh, the Americans, just how important we are. I think as the Americans, I think, would know that. People who are smart down there know it. To me, what she was doing was she was actually meeting with other groups like the Heritage Foundation, the very right-wing think tank in Washington, actually advises Trump. So I think she was actually reminding people like that, that Canada, and especially Alberta, may be an NDP government, but pragmatically, they're here to promote trade and promote jobs. Also, it was a fact-finding mission for her. By talking to people who advised Trump, she was hoping to get a better idea of what exactly is Trump going to do? What are his goals? So behind the scenes, closed door, she gets to sit down with people in Heritage Foundation who actually deal with Trump directly to ask what's actually going on. So it's more, to me, a fact-finding mission. Of course, also it's a flag-waving expedition. Whenever a premier goes to Washington, D.C., it's really about the premier saying to Albertans, I'm putting forward your best interests. I'm here to sell Alberta. That always plays well in in Alberta. And Klein did it. They've all done it. And so I think that there's an added dimension to this because we do have this new administration, and we're all wondering where it's actually going, even though Trump did say, gave reassurances to Trudeau that he was really only going to be tweaking NAFTA when it comes to Canada. We're still worried about getting caught in the collateral damage with Mexico and the U.S. and that, that fight going on. But I think ultimately it was a smart move for her to go down, wave the flag, and do some fact-finding um, I guess, touring of her own. And I think it's worth mentioning that Trudeau went down there and he got a mention in Trump's uh, joint session address, the, the kind of stand-in for the State of the Union address. And I think that this is a president who is probably more influenced by those personal meetings than others. And I think that if you can find that advisor who's going to speak to him last, you might 
being with a shout. <laughs> well, it makes sense. You know, I think the more premiers should be thinking about it. It was good that, that Trudeau's meeting with him went well. Uh, as Graham mentioned, we're, they're talking about making tweaks to NAFTA. It's in Canada's interest to ensure that we are dealt a fair hand in that or we don't come out hurting in that and having as much influence in the process as is a good thing. So it's good that Nolly went. It's, it's uh, yeah, a fact-finding mission, but I think that Canada as a whole and all the premiers included should be uh, doing their best to be waving the flag down there and say, we are a good partner. Um, it is in, of mutual interest to businesses on both sides of the border to uh, trade openly and, and fairly with each other. I think another thing, too, is that a lot of industry players in Alberta are just feeling so uncertain about what's going on in the U.S. Yeah, and that's right. you go down there and you talk to some people and maybe you get some idea of what's going on and you can come back to Alberta and say, look, here's what we, here's what they're telling us and here's what you should know and here's what you should be worried about and here's what you shouldn't be worried about, which I think is a, a it's a good thing just to kind of alleviate those fears. Now to our regular segment, good stuff from the gallery. Dave, do you have anything this week? If you check the journal site this morning, we, we have online a, a feature up uh, from Gordon Kent about an Alberta man who uh, tragically died by suicide after he was fleeced uh, by an Israeli binary options firm oh, yeah, for $300,000. It's, it's a sad story, but it's a really compelling read. Uh, my cute read of the week was Terry Jones's piece about the uh, former Rockford Peach baseball player who was recently inducted into the Alberta Sports Hall of Fame. It's a, it's a cute read. And, you know, for anyone out there who's uh, a big fan of uh, the original movie Train Spotting, I've been obsessively rereading it in advance of the sequel movie coming out in a couple of weeks. That's been kind of consuming my life. I like that you've gone multimedia through. Yes. I like <laughs> it. It's good. Stuart? Uh, I'm going to recommend a book I've been reading uh, called Nixon Land by Rick Perlstein. Um, partly it's because of my bizarre fa uh, fascination with Richard Nixon, but also because this is a book that it is not just about Nixon. It's about the time, the era, like the late 60s, early 70s. And there was a lot of um, uh, race riots going on back then. There was a lot of really ugly politics. And, you know, there's I think there's been some really superficial comparisons of Trump to Nixon, which I don't think is true. But I think there are some better comparisons of the age in which they happened and the sort of underlying forces of that. So it's a, it's a really interesting book, especially if you're interested in that time. Nice. Um, I'm going to recommend a piece that was on The Guardian. Mem Fox. Now, she's an Australian children's author. She's a national bloody treasure is what Mem Fox is. And it's uh, Mem Fox on being detained by U.S. immigration. In that moment, I loathed America. So she is, you know, a lady in a white lady in her 60s, very well spoken, very much Australian. English is her first language. And she was detained by U.S. immigration and she wrote about her experience. And it was a very, very powerful read and um, kind of made me a little outraged. I read that uh, that's she's the equivalent of like Dr. Seuss yes, for Australia. She, yeah, but better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> Everyone's just like, oh, you just started a war, <laughs> a children's book war. Um, uh, Graham, diffuse the situation for us. <laughs> um, okay, speaking of the Edmonton Journal and Post Media, um, a feature that ran last weekend, so it's a few days old, but it still is a really good piece, was Janet French's investigation into um, the Catholic school board. Oh, yeah. And um, the, the feature was entitled, Across to Bear, Edmonton Catholic School Trustees Are Plagued by Conflict, Secrecy, and Questionable Conduct. 
wonderful piece. Like she spent a lot, like a year, almost a year, I think. Eight months. Eight, eight <laughs> yeah. months working on this. And I thought this was a really good piece to show that journalism matters. No one else is doing this kind of work. And she did a wonderful job uh, exposing the problems within the Catholic school board, um, the school board. So I think that this is definitely worth worth reading. And then the next day went along to the Catholic school board meeting. Yeah, that <laughs> is the thing. People, I don't think people necessarily understand that about journalism is when you write something kind of mean about someone, you have to go and see them the next day. Look him in the eye and go, hello. Yeah, and they were sort of, I mean, they're at a meeting where she's just observing and they were sort of talking about her piece (laughs) the whole time. (laughs) I love it when that happens. Thank you all so much for joining me, Dave, Stuart, Graham, and Sean Butts for filming some of this to put online at edmontonjournal.com where you can find all the episodes of the Press Gallery podcast. You can also subscribe to our SoundCloud channel, iTunes and TuneIn Radio. Hope you join us again this time next week on the Press Gallery.